History is um, littered with examples of one thing superseding another. So the internet has superseded CFAX. And um, from the blank looks on the faces of the under-20s, it has clearly done a thorough job of that. Um, The automobile has superseded the horse and carriage. Um, And it's not always just that something more advanced has replaced something that was worse. Sometimes there is a, a, a purposeful progression So, for example, in a few years, we will probably buy Lizzie one of those, I think they're called um, balance bikes. You know, they're little bikes with no pedals, and the little children kind of scooch along on them. Um, And then a few years later, after that, we'll put the balance bike in the shed and buy her a proper bike, a real bike. And it's not that there's anything wrong with the balance bike, not at all. Uh, It was never meant to be the final thing. It was a kind of a model, an analogy, a, a, a staging post, if you like, to help her on towards the full and proper version. Well, the passage that Victoria read to us, it seems quite complicated, but really it is making one point, which is that Jesus in his death superseded the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's all. In his death, Jesus supersedes the Old Testament sacrificial system. For um, thousands of years, in obedience to God's instructions, Jewish people had sacrificed animals in order to find peace with God. They'd go to the temple or the tabernacle with a, a sheep, something like that, and confess sins over the head of the animal, and then it would be slaughtered, its blood shed. And all of this was a way for God to say and show, show, that when we ignore him in our lives, when we do things that are wrong, that's really serious. And the proper penalty for that is death. Our blood should be shed. But, gloriously, he is willing to accept, instead of that, the blood of a substitute. That the, the fate that should have been mine becomes the fate of the animal. And it's a way for God to say and show that justice has been done. Sin hasn't been swept under the carpet. The proper penalty has been paid. And yet... Sinful people, sinful men and women, can be forgiven. And also in the national life of Israel, every year there was an annual festival, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would, would um, offer a bull for the sins of the people. And it's really making the same point at the macro scale about justice and forgiveness, that God is willing to forgive his sinful people because a substitute had died for them. And that was the way of it that he had laid down all through the Old Testament. But then Jesus came along, and John the Baptist cries, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus said that he would lay down his life, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, that on the cross he would take the punishment that we deserved. That he would restore that way the relationship between God and human beings. And so Jesus, in his death, supersedes the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's not that those Old Testament sacrifices were bad, not at all. God himself had commanded them. But they were never meant to be the final thing. They were an analogy, um, a model, preparing the way for Jesus when he came. Just have a look, please, at this very start of chapter 10. See how the writer puts it. Simple point. The law there, meaning the Old Testament. Um, For since the Old Testament has but a shadow of the good things to come, 
instead of the true form of these realities. That's the contrast. Shadow, Old Testament sacrificialism, reality that has come in Jesus. So it's not a complicated point, even though it's quite a complicated passage in some ways. But the question is, well, two questions. How is Jesus' death better than those old sacrifices? And then secondly, so what? What's all this got to do with real life tomorrow when normal life gets back to uh, what? Why does all this matter? All this stuff about priests and sacrifices, it seems very arcane. Why should I bother about this? Well, that's how we're going to uh, look at this passage. We're going to ask, how is the death of Jesus better? And then why does it matter? We will look at it in that order, because it makes sense to do that. But just in case this all seems spectacularly uninviting, or in case it's been a long week for you, let me just whet your appetite a tiny little bit about why this actually matters. Um, Some of you here, take it, are not yet uh, convinced Christians. And the writer wants you to know that that is really serious. Next week, as we look at the second half of of chapter 10, he, he says to us, he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet that is what will happen if you haven't got Jesus to represent you as a priest and sacrifice. That's why you need to understand all this. Because without the blood of Jesus, the Lord will be after your blood. And in the end, he'll have it. And so we need to listen to this. Or if you are a Christian, um, you will find in your life there is pressure to stop following Jesus, to stop trusting in him. It's what the Hebrews experienced, and it's, it's why this letter was written. It's what we feel too. They, they feel, we feel the pressure of sin within and opposition from the outside. And um, these bring quite subtle pressures on us to drift away from Jesus, and yet they are powerful. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will have seen that, that people drift away from Jesus. And the thing that will stop us from doing that, the thing that will help us, that will hold us firm, says the writer here, is a sharper, clearer view, clearer understanding of the death of Jesus. So it's surprisingly practical, surprisingly urgent as we look at it, all this stuff about priests. And, and um, so let's, let's look at what the writer actually says now under those two headings. So first, why is Jesus' death better? If it supersedes the Old Testament, how come? Why is it better? And um, as we look through the section, there are, there are three reasons that are given. They're kind of intermingled, but three reasons. We'll pick them apart. Um, so looking at the start of the passage, please, the start of chapter 9, he seems to be saying that Jesus' sacrifice is better because he went into the reality of heaven and not just the man-made model of the tabernacle, the Old Testament. He went into the reality of heaven, Jesus, not just the man-made model. So he starts, start at the beginning of chapter 9, he's describing the man-made model, the Old Testament system with the tabernacle, the tent, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant. But then if you look on to verse 11, as the flow of thought continues, he says, but... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, that is, into heaven. 
Or have a look on, please, to verse 24 of that chapter. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are only copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. When the the priests in the Old Testament, when they approached the Lord in the tabernacle, the temple, that was just a symbol. It was real enough. It was an accurate, God-given picture. But nevertheless, it was just a picture. Because God doesn't live anywhere on earth that's made by human hands. He's the God of heaven and earth. But with Jesus, with his sacrifice, he walked right into the reality of heaven, right into God's presence where God really is. No more analogies, no more symbolism. This is it. And therefore, the forgiveness that comes from the offering he made there is full and final and real. You see that in a few places. The writer seems to make a distinction between the ceremonial outward cleansing that the Old Testament sacrifices were able to achieve and the full, proper cleansing that Jesus is able to give. Hang on a minute. Someone might say, thinking back to the Old Testament, we didn't, I mean, the Lord, he did forgive those people though. He did. Um, But we find out here that forgiveness in the Old Testament was never on the strength of those animal sacrifices, of that old system. And we'll see why in a minute. Rather, God was able to forgive his people back then because he knew that one day their sins would be punished in Jesus and his death. It's as if the, the symbolic animal sacrifices were underwritten, does that make sense, by the real sacrifice of Jesus that would one day come. I was trying to think of a way of illustrating this, and the, the best I can think of is it's like, a, it's like a check and hard cash. There's nothing wrong with a check. If I write you a check, there's nothing wrong with that. But it needs to be backed up by hard cash. That's what you're interested in, I take it. And um, the the Old Testament, that's symbolic, in a sense, like a check. Whereas Jesus is dealing with hard realities. I think that's what the writer is saying. It's real. Not a symbol anymore, it's real. Which is important for us, because our sin is real. And our guilt is real. And so Hebrews is saying, it's been really dealt with. There's no more phases down the line in God's plan. There's nothing more he needs to do. There's nothing left to happen. It's done. Have a look, please. Um, Chapter 10, verse 14. We'll see how real this is, what Christ has done for those who trust in him. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you are a Christian, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you are now perfect in God's sight because of Jesus. Which isn't always easy to believe, is it? Because with a lot of things in the Christian life, we're still waiting for it. So we're still waiting for the full redemption of our bodies, the redemption of this world, a new creation. There's a lot that we are waiting for. Oh, I still sin, and one day God will deal with that. And it's really easy to feel like, actually, my forgiveness isn't a done deal. I'm still waiting for the full enjoyment of that. Not true, says this passage. Jesus has died. He's offered his blood. He's gone into heaven where God really is. He has made peace. And there's nothing else to do. 
It's real. It's done. If you are a Christian, then you are now perfect in God's sight because it's real. And that's the first reason why his sacrifice is better. And secondly, moving on, linked to that, it's better because he offered his own blood rather than the blood of goats and bulls. So have a look, please, at uh, chapter 9, verse 11 again. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then if that was too long, he just states the principle in 10 verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, I hope that makes sense, some sense at least intuitively, that as a a substitute, a bull or a lamb is not an adequate representative for a human being. Look at the person next to you. Uh, Even if you have a really high view of lambs and bulls, and even if you have a really low view of the person sitting there, you can't represent morally a person with an animal. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not a fair exchange rate, if you like. If I get sent down by a judge for three years, you know, I can't send a horse or a rabbit to pay that for me. Whereas if, if it was my brother, <clears throat> I mean, not under our legal system, but you start to see that Jesus came as our brother with a human body to lay down his human life, to shed his human blood for our human sin. And so that's it. It's done. It's paid for. Which leads into the, the, the final reason why his sacrifice is better. Um, let me run through them. His death supersedes the Old Testament sacrificial system because he he worked at the level of heavenly reality, not earthly symbol. Uh, Secondly, because he offered his own blood rather than the blood of goats and bulls. Third, because his sacrifice was once for all. Once for all, rather than repeated. Um, See that, please, in 9 verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are only copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, under the Old Testament system, there had to be repeated sacrifices every year, every year, more bulls, more goats, 
Every time they went, the people had a fresh reminder that their sin was still a problem. Every time, they knew that they'd be back. But Jesus, his sacrifice, he laid his life down once for all. And if you look through the big passage, it's the thing that the writer clearly wants to emphasize. So 9 verse 12, Jesus entered heaven once for all. Or 10 verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Or if you read on from there at uh, verse 11 in chapter 10, he says, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down get that? He sat down because he's finished. There's nothing left to do. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so that is why the sacrifice of Christ is better, because it brought in what the Old Testament could only promise and point to. In the words quoted in verse 17 from Jeremiah, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Isn't that, as we think about the things that are on our consciences, things in our life, isn't that a wonderful idea that as far as God is concerned, because of what Jesus has done, our sin is gone. It's gone, forgotten. You know, God hasn't got it in a file somewhere, and if we blow it again, he's going to bring it out and wave it in our face. It's gone. It's gone. Which brings us nicely into why all this matters. The priests, the sacrifices, seems obscure. Why does this matter? Because it shows us why it's great to be a Christian. If you're not, it shows us why it's great to be a Christian. And it shows us why, if you are a Christian, we need to stick with him no matter what. Let me break the why this matters part of this into three ideas again. First, the writer is saying, saying to the Hebrews, don't give up on Jesus because he is your priest, he is your sacrifice, you need him. You need him. Because it's really easy for us to forget that. You know, when do you feel, oh, I really need a priest? You don't feel that. You feel, I need a plumber, I need a hairdresser, I need... um, When do you think, I need a priest? So we need this reminder that our sin is really serious, that we live in God's world and he is the mighty creator, the awesome God, and we've offended him. And... You know, we don't take that seriously very often, but he does. And we'll read next week, chapter 10, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why does the Bible say things like that? To wake us up. Because if it's true, if we've offended God and he has every right to repay us, to be after us and after our blood for the way that you've treated him, ignoring him, valuing other things more than him, well, how, you know, how could you sleep at night? If God has every reason to repay you, what will you do? You know, who will you turn to? 
It'd be one thing if you knew that a person was after you, you know, that would stress you out, wouldn't it? Or if you thought that the police were after you, stress you out. Well, if God is after you, rightly, where will you turn? To Jesus, the priest, the sacrifice, who can help you. You know, we're not, probably, most of us, dreadful people. We're not axe murderers. We're just normal, proud people who are selfish and who tell lies and who value other things ahead of God. And the writer is just reminding us that while sin seems normal to us, it really matters. And it means the world that you have a priest who has shed blood on your behalf so that you can be friends with God and not an enemy. That's what this passage is saying to us. That you need to stick with Jesus because he's your priest and that is a very urgent thing. You will stick with him. Even when you're feeling the pressure of sin from the inside and you, 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 you grow weary of battling against sin. And the writer is saying, no, you need to stick with Jesus. He, he really has, really can deal with this. Don't just give in and go off and stop following him. Stick with him. Or when, like was happening with the Hebrews, you're getting a hard time from the people around you. They think it's stupid that you're a Christian. Stick with the priest who can save you from the wrath of God. Your adherence to him will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see your need of him and his blood. Christians who survive and who finish the race of faith that this book talks about are those who have a clear picture of the sacrifice of Jesus and their own need of it. I think that's the big idea here. That's how this fits into the, the main message of the book. But there are a couple of other ideas in the background that will help to take us into the detail of the pressure that the Hebrews were perhaps feeling. Um, and so secondly, the second reason why this matters is I think the writer is saying to us, don't go back to repeated works I think that was part of how the Hebrews were feeling the pressure to drift away from Jesus. They were tempted to go back to repeated works. I think that must be why the writer so labors this point about the sacrifice being once for all. Because after all, you know, everybody in the world knows that life works through quid pro quo. If you want your boss to pay you, you've got to do your work. And so why not with God? If you want him to forgive you or to favor you, it makes all the sense in the world that you would have to do something for him. And if you've messed up, then you'll have to do something else for him to make it up. It's an ongoing thing. Quid pro quo, it's the normal way of the world, and it's the normal way of human religion. That was true then. We can imagine the contemporaries of the Hebrews going to, whether they were Jewish or whether they were Roman, they would go and they would make an offering, maybe every month or every week, and there would be a real comfort in that. 
you know, I've done something wrong, but it's okay. I, I've been to the temple again. I've made reparation. I feel that I've done something to make amends. And this way of working is still very much alive today, isn't it? If you, if you chat to people who you know, don't really think that much about church, um, I find at least that, that a lot of people think that the reason for coming here, I don't know if you, maybe you think this is true, um, the reason for coming here is to get God on your side. A lot of people think that. Or if you want to be more formal about it, um, probably like, roughly a third of the world's population would identify itself some way with either Islam or Roman Catholicism, both of which teach formally that uh, a person has to keep on doing good things in order to be accepted by God. It's very much alive and well. But maybe you're sitting here, you think, well, I, you know, I'm, that's not why I've come to church. And I'm, you know, I, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I believe it's Jesus' death that saves me. But we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that? Because then, why do we feel so crushed? Why do you feel so crushed when you haven't had a quiet time? Or when you've given in to lust again, or had too much to drink again? Or why do you feel puffed up with pride when you haven't done those things? Because deep down, we still believe that it's our performance that establishes our relationship with God. You know, being honest, who, who among us, if we're honest, hasn't done a sort of mental scales and said, well, I, you know, my good deeds are on one side and my bad deeds are on the other. Uh, fair enough, I did lie at work today. But on the other hand, I gave away that money. Often we find ourselves thinking that way, at least I do, because that's our natural instinct. There is something attractive about repeated works. True for them, for the Hebrews. They were being drawn to it. True for us. Jesus' death has happened, but we think there's more that we can add. But the writer says, that is not the Christian life. Jesus paid once for all. And we need to learn to relate to God through that, not through our own performance. Actually, that's a better way to live. Instead of uh, riding the roller coaster of performance up and down, pride and fall, never quite certain at the end of the day whether we have done enough good to outweigh the bad, that is not a good way to live. And so it's great news from the writer that it was once for all that Jesus paid. Even though that's counterintuitive, even though it's humbling, even though it takes away from us the reassurance of being able to do something when we feel guilty, we look to Christ and know that it is finished because he paid his perfect blood and so we won't go back away from him to repeated works. And then finally, the final thing that's in the writer's mind here, I think we can tell, uh, is that he's saying to them, he's saying to us, do not go back to visible symbols. I think that's, again, you've got to ask, why does he go into such, such length to explain all this about the Old Testament? I think he's saying to them, don't go back to visible symbols. According to Hebrews, 
Christianity is all about faith in an invisible Jesus. He's in heaven. He's not here. There's nothing to see here. Jesus is invisible. He's not here. Um, And our reward is future. It's, It's in the future. There's nothing to see. Have a quick look, please. The first verse of chapter 11. This is where the writer's train of thought is heading. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's what he explains, that um, Christianity in some ways offers us nothing in the present time, at least nothing we can see. And yet we do find, in the same way as there's something attractive about repeated works, there is something attractive about visual, sensory religion. There's something substantial and real about a special building with a special person inside who is conducting a special ceremony. And it's easy to see how the Hebrews would have felt that attraction as their Jewish friends, their Roman friends, head off to the visible place with the visible priest. Those things are tangible and comforting and immediate and real. And they're completely empty because the reality is Jesus in heaven the temple and the tabernacle, at least they were God-given symbols, and even they have gone, superseded. The arrival of Jesus means the era of symbolism is over. The reality is here. And so, don't get sucked back into wanting a visible religion. And I think that is important for us to hear, because it's a well-trodden path from faith in the invisible Christ, as the Bible describes it, and from that kind of church into another kind of faith and another kind of church that is much more visual and sensory. Ah, the Bible preaching, that's all just words. Give me something I can see or smell and touch. You mean something like the Old Testament, which Jesus has completely superseded. When you think about um, beautiful cathedrals or services that are all about a sensory experience or a a, a huge overemphasis on the ritual of communion, doesn't it sound a lot like the Old Testament? I want a religious experience I can see and feel instead of the intangible word of the invisible Jesus. And yet, he is the reality. The era of symbols is over. And so that's, that's what the writer is saying to us, I think. He's saying, stick with Jesus. Don't start getting nostalgic about CFAX when you've got the internet. Don't start getting the kiddie's bike back out of the shed. Jesus has superseded that Old Testament system. And even though you can't see him now, and even though it was once for all, he and his sacrifice are real, and they have brought you to God. So stick with him. And don't drift away from him back into something that is not Christ and his word When you suffer, when you struggle, look to him. Serve him. 
Wait for him. Stick with him. Let's pray. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Lord, we do find that very quickly we forget the seriousness of sin. And we do find that we are drawn back into the natural way of thinking of repeated works. And we're drawn to visible symbols. And so we pray that you would fill our hearts tonight and always with the reality of what Jesus has done for us in laying down his life. We praise you for his blood, which takes away our sin and brings us into your very presence, or will do one day. Lord, thank you that he is standing in heaven and that one day we will be there too. In the meantime, Father, please help us to stick with Jesus, to look to him, to trust in him, to serve him loyally, to wait for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.